Hi, this is Frank Menzer. Whether you play Moldvay or My Edition or any other basic D&D, tune in next for Save or Die, basic D&D. At first I was afraid. I was petrified. Kept thinking I could never live without you by my side. But then I spent so many nights just thinking how you did me wrong. And I grew strong. And I learned how to get along. <laughs> Save or Die once again with DM Mike. And this is episode 81, the year a lot of our listeners started gaming. <laughs> hmm. Well, it's true. I can't, I can't count the number of times I've seen posts and everything. I started in 1981. I, I started in 1981, I believe. Well, there you go. I'm sure and I think that's listeners. when the Mulvey set came out, isn't it? I'm sure some of our listeners were born in 81. <laughs> I had to stop and think one day and figure out, but yeah, 80, 81, something like that. Something like. Yeah. Okay, and as usual, there's DM Glenn. Blah, to the second power. Blah, blah, blah. DM Jim. And this is Jim Wampler reporting for Saver Die News. Back to you, Mike. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> And DM Liz. Hello, hello. And this episode, we're talking about space, 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 or science fiction, anyway, in your classic D and D game. Well, yep. I wish, kind of wish, Fulon was here for this. He'd love it. Full on oh well. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my invitation anyway. Greetings, Gamer Nation. <laughs> <laughs> that is how he sounds. Yep. Oh, if y'all haven't done it over at Thaco's Hammer, maybe I could do that as a subject. Yeah, that might work for Dewey, sure. Anyway, but before we get to our stuff, as usual and traditional, we'll talk about what we've done recently. And we'll start with Liz. Okay. <laughs> um, well, we've had our usual second edition weekly game. Taco. Taco, yes. My cleric is still alive, amazingly enough. But she's not quite as squishy and with a gooey sinner as my mage character was beforehand. So she's she's coming along pretty nicely. She's at least able to wear armor. So that helps a lot. That helps, yeah. Um, Are you guys still in the Savage Land? No, we've made it out of there, and now we are in... We are beneath a kind of a step pyramid type um, crypt, and we're trying to we're un, we're in the cliffs below the pyramid, and we're trying to make our way up into the pyramid itself, where this you know ancient 
vampire is lurking and we need to kill it. And Oh, Ratspit. Uh, his name's not Ratspit, but it's pretty close. And wait, wait a minute, Ratspit that has down. become Ratspit. his official name. Ratspit. That's going on my next names thing. Ratspit, yes. Well, to be fair, I ripped it off from the Dungeon Master movie from the 1980s with uh, Richard Mull. But, um, yeah, and uh, one of our players, Preston, has changed his character from the Dwarven Ninja to a, a, a one of these big Fabio-looking paladins who obeys Liz's character's every whim. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm a cleric, and he's a paladin of my cleric of my cleric's god. So as far as hierarchy goes, I'm more important than he is. She's in charge. As an actual priest, he needs to follow my instructions. Nice. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> I, I know you're such a harsh taskmaster, too, showing up with, like, pumpkin pie and banana bread. I am. It's yeah. all... <laughs> Do my bidding. <laughs> Do you want more pumpkin pie? <laughs> Be like that, uh, the... Well, the Anglican Inquisitors, cake or death? Yes. Cake or death? <laughs> cake or death? I'll have cake. All right, give him cake. <laughs> so what else? Well, apart from that, gaming-wise, the um, play-by-post game of our friend Kevin's, uh, been doing some more of that. Things are starting to pick up again there. And hopefully you have been issued a, an invitation by now, Jim. I have. I have. Okay, Thank you very cool. much for that. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> so I've been doing that. And also, and this has nothing whatsoever to do with any iteration of D&D whatsoever, but also playing in Mike's game, Victorious. Insert free plug here. <laughs> Starting the eighth year of playtesting. That's right. <laughs> for real? <laughs> Um, I needed also, to hear that, so thank you. <laughs> what's that? I needed to hear that, so thank you. They're, oh, okay. They're, they're talking to me about, oh, we love this, but we're thinking 2015, 2016. I'm like, I hope it's yeah. that long. Yeah, well, Angry Monk has <clears throat> closed down his campaign for a while and wants to run some one-shotters, so we're waiting for him to get read up on that great Judges Guild module Glory Hole Dwarven Mine. I told him he didn't have to do it, but he's going to do it. Yeah. I, I, for one, have never played in a Judges Guild module, so I'm really excited about that. And then he sent me an email because I didn't respond instantly. Like, is it okay if you play a 10th level magic user? I'm like, is it okay? <laughs> Let me think about this. Just don't throw me in that <laughs> briar patch. For our... Everybody back it up about 100 yards and I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's that. We're looking forward to that whenever that'll come up. Hopefully that'll be in the next few weeks. Um, it's only sort of save or die, but uh, Liz and I got our decrepit old bones out last night and went to a midnight uh, concert or well, it was a so- club. It, it was sort of a concert. Um, our friend happening. Yes, Bohemian Happening, that's right. Our friends Liz and Heather Larson, um, we've gamed with them before at North Texas RPG Con and hopefully will be again next year. And they live in Denton along with us. Uh, the two of them are a band 
um, or a group rather. I'm not exactly sure, you know, a duo. <laughs> they are a duo, yes, called Wiving. And we went to a performance of theirs late last night in Denton. So it's it was a stripper. <laughs> with a, yeah, with a stripper. Well, I'm insanely jealous. <laughs> Like, hey, I'm the blind guy. I didn't get to see anything. <laughs> um, of, of getting to see them perform, not the stripping. Yeah. Oh, of course. That's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a really good performance. And they they have, they have a fantastic sound. Um, after that was all over with, and we went up and we're talking with Liz, and Mike was saying, you know, when are you guys going to have a CD out? He's like, because we were listening, you know, and during the thing, you know, Mike would be, you know, kind of going over to my ear and saying, like, this is really good. I like this. <laughs> and I, any song that starts off with the line, let's kill your dad and take over the world, <laughs> you know, you know, that's a good song. That, that was pretty fun. <laughs> And that's Save or Die Connected because they're big Save or Die listeners. So give them a shout-out. Yes. They, they they listen to us. You all should should listen to their stuff. I don't know if they're out on SoundCloud or Reverb Nation or any of those places yet, but once once I find out, um, try to pass that along to people. They've got a, a, a good, you know, synthesizer-heavy, you know, 80s. So what would you call it, like an 80s? Progressive sort of, 80s. Yeah, progressive 80s punk sound. Punk, sort of. yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was really good. Um, and Heather's got an amazing voice. She's just, it's just wonderful. And if I ever get off my butt and actually run a classic game regularly down here, we're going to have to invite them over one of these days. <laughs> so anyway, anything else? Um, that's all I can think of for you and me. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Jim? Oh, um, well, we had our gaming, uh, our regular gaming last night in the, uh, Taco Crawl Classics RPG. Mm hmm. Yeah. No, but, uh, <laughs> uh a, uh, playtest, uh, GM. That'd be a good game for a day. That'd be a good game for a role playing game. Yeah. Taco Crawl Classics? Yeah. <laughs> By Mike Stewart. Nah. <laughs> Which no. means it'll come out in eight years. <laughs> but it will be extensively play tested. Mm. I have to choose my words carefully because it was a play test of an upcoming Michael Curtis adventure called The Chain Coffin that was run by uh, uh, Judge Rick Hull, uh, who's a play tester for Goodman Games. I've, I've been in his play tests before, and I mean, it was as much old school fun as you could possibly have. Michael and uh, Curtis and Harley Stroh just bring it every time they do a new one of these modules. And I can't talk about it because it won't be out for another six months. But uh, Hey, Liz. Yeah? A good time was had, had by, by all. all. Right. <laughs> the, the, the end of the adventure greatly resembled the, an Errol Otis cover from first edition AD&D. That wasn't too spoilery, was it? No. No. And no. Um, God bless Rick Hull. He's run me in so many of these playtesting con games um, to the point where I, I'm not allowed to play a wizard anymore. I'm not allowed to play an elf anymore. So I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll be the cleric this time. And uh, about halfway through last night, he's like, note to self, don't ever give Jim another cleric. <laughs> so I call that a win. Sorry. I love so how you said later. con games. Sooner or later, you're going to be denied every single player class. It's, it's going to get down to, like, you're the fighter. 
<laughs> You're the halfling. <laughs> All right. Anything else? No, no. Just that's it. That's it. Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we bored you. No, we're strippers. What? What? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you oh, kind of yeah. zoned out everything after strippers. <clears throat> yeah. Um, you, you, anyway. You've been playing Scrooge and script memorization, right? Yeah, pretty much. The S&S. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we start. Yeah, right. Yeah, we start rehearsal last Wednesday. So, uh, and, but we, I still have time for my, uh, basic game or my Labyrinth Lord game every other Saturday. Unfortunately, it wasn't this Saturday. Next Saturday, I think. Where we are going to watch, see who dies and what Brad does this time. Um, let's see what else. I got some goodies. Oh, somebody, I can't remember who. I'm sorry out there, but I already thank you on Facebook. Somebody sent me a copy of Dream Park, the role playing game. Okay. If anybody ever remembers that it was from our Telzorian games. It was based on the books by Larry Niven and Stephen Barnes. Yeah, I remember the book, or at least the first one I read. <laughs> Bad, but I never, never play. Actually, I don't think I, I really played I, any Talsorian games. When I started, when I started with Artel, I got in right around. They were doing this, and they were doing the modules, and I got to do, I had to do some layout cleanup on one of the modules. And Mike Pondsmith gave me a copy of it, and I just fell in love with it. Mm. I mean, you talk about a universal system. I mean, it's a universal system. It's not a universal system. It's something like 120, 130 pages long, but it packs a wallop, boy. Because you're basically playing a character playing a character in a virtual game. Yeah, you'd have to for Dream Park. Right. But so kind of pre, pre-Hackmaster double immersion. Yeah. But let me tell you, that thing taught me how to write an adventure. Okay. It really did. There's some, in the back of the book that said how to write Dream Park Adventures, and I just followed that diagram, and son of a gun, all of a sudden. And, you know, they blend genres, too, in there, but it works better. Oh, yeah. And I was lamenting that I can't find this anywhere, and some guy said, well, here, I got a copy I'll probably never use. He sent it to me just for, like, shipping, and it came, and it looks like it had never been used. It was beautiful. He said, I don't have the cards with it. I says, look, the only thing I managed to save was the cards, so we're okay. <laughs> All <laughs> it good. Came, it came with it character cards in the back for, like, the, the sample games and stuff. But uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful game. Dream Park by Artels and Games. If you can find it, uh, find a copy, get it. You will not be disappointed. Uh, let's see. What else? And I'm uh, doing some kind of podcast called Save or Die. Uh and the and I'm expecting my tunnels and trolls and stuff very soon. Thank you, Keith, who runs a con called StormCon that I thought I'd plug. I believe it's South Carolina, and uh, I thought I'd give him a free plug on the show. Go, Keith! Yeah, yeah. And, does Does anybody know what's going on with the tunnels and trolls Kickstarter? <clears throat> we, I I don't. But um, I got a uh, an update in my email just the other day. There. Yeah, I'm I'm getting updates in my email about well, that's something. Um so they're still working on it. Um a lot of the extras have been slowly going out to the backers. The dice bags are about to go out for the people who ordered the dice bags. Uh-huh. So I... they they are slowly but surely getting to the point where the actual, you know, 
rule books will be printed out. Okay. Yeah. But I'm, apparently Liz Danforth had been ill, been ill. Yeah, earlier this summer. Oh, and dear. that put them way behind because she was, you know, doing the, the editing and stuff. See, all I get is emails from Ken St. Andre about some game he's running on email. <laughs> I don't get any info on the Deluxe Tunnels and Trolls thing, and this is why I badgered Rick Loomis so bad about it at the convention, because it's like, look, I didn't pay through Amazon because I had PayPal, but you got your money, but I feel I always feel like I'm not in the loop here. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You know, I've got a few extras, you know, Coming to me, my main concern is I want the book. I did the I did the the tier to get the book, mm-hmm. but there's a few extras, and if they send a few of those, maybe that would like keep me like, okay, it's coming, you know. Have you gotten the henna tattoos yet? No. Okay, we got that at least. Yeah, I've I've gotten squat basically. Yeah, you might want to contact them about that I will, then. Yeah, I will pay good money for a picture of Glenn in a t- henna tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> of what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Anything. Just the henna tattoo. <laughs> right. I, I, as long as it's you know acceptable by Facebook standards. Okay. okay. Well, that's on me. that tragic, awkward note, that's me. do we have any emails? We do have emails. And good emails. Of- we have intelligent listeners. Yes, we do. We have good And handsome and beautiful ones, too. I don't know and- about that, but. And none of I, them have talked about henna tattoos, so I'm sure. That's also a not plus. yet, <laughs> or about deluxe tunnels and trolls. Anyway, nope. So I'm I'm hoping. Anyway, yeah. What do we got? Okay, okay. <clears throat> Our first email is from Charlie. Hi, Charlie. Who is known as Knight of Gondor on the Dragon's Foot forums for oh, yeah. listeners who frequent that locale. Hey, if there's any, if there's any, um, J Ward, Rocky and Bullwinkle, Fracture Flicker fans, fans, you'll get this. Poor Charlie. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. <laughs> and Charlie writes, greetings to Sod. I listened to all three D&D podcasts, and though classic D&D is not my system of choice, I find yours to be the most informative and accurate. <laughs> the most. Oh, thank you, Charlie. Thank you. <laughs> In your face, what? Vince. You gotta do it like you gotta do it like crispy. Take that, Vince. Hey, Vince started save or die. We're so, all family. I'll, Vince. Besides, just Jim's playing. just trying to get some more some more forum time. That's all. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> trying to create dissent amongst you know, the ranks. You know, I you know, see. You know, Corey accused Brian of sending in an email himself just so he could kiss his butt. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. We're all family. Anyway. We're all family. We're all friends. We all love each other. Yes. Platonically. Anyway, back, back, to, back to Charlie's letter. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Charlie continues. <laughs> he will. We'll let him. One of these days, I will get off my lazy duff and actually write a review of all three for iTunes. Please do. Now, yeah, about time Victorious comes. <laughs> yes, and please review that as well. Yes. <laughs> now to the topic at hand, which is in two parts. Number one, do you as DMs create cultures for your players' PCs, or do you let the players create the culture? 
i.e., when world creating, do you take the time to make a culture for elves and then require PC elves to fit your creation? Or do you just create the antagonists and let your PCs worry about how their elf character will act? Hmm. Well, I keep get Petri dishes around just in case. Um, what do you think, Mike? Um, I'll save mine because, as usual, it's going to be a little long and 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 parsed. But anyway, shall I go? Uh, yeah, sure. you go ahead. I mean, I I don't have this problem, but I don't think it's as big a deal sometimes as people make it. Because if your player characters are the protagonists of your story, they're already separate from their own native cultures. They're already unusual examples: elves and dwarves that have chosen to hang out with humans. So they're already the exception to the rule just by virtue of being player characters. So I don't ever sweat this particular thing too much, you know, within reason. Don't don't you know? Don't go on a murderous rampage if you're from a peaceful culture without being mm-hmm. the right alignment. That kind of thing. I think he's talking about is you know if you've designed your dwarves say to be Tolkien esque, and then somebody says, "Well, I want to play a dwarven ninja." Oh right, like in your game. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Which caught my attention. You said, "I'm like a dwarven ninja." That's a very nimble, puckish little guy. <laughs> and by the way, that's the guy who eventually dumped his dwarven ninja to become you know Fabio the. The paladin. So, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So yeah, okay. Uh, Liz, well, I think Jim does have a point. If you if you are an elf, um, but I don't think he means specifically, you know, just elves. But that was just one of his um, examples. Right. You know, suppose you're a human and you your character comes from this kingdom within the game world that the DM has created. And as a, say, a minor noble of this kingdom, he or she is expected to know certain things and to act certain ways toward those around them. You know, what if they refuse to do that and they just do not fit the background that their character is supposed to come from? Um you, you take careful notes and send that script to Jolly Blackburn for inclusion in Knights at Dinner Table. That's all that's about. <laughs> oh. I want to be a noble cavalier that dresses all in black and, and, and beats the hell out of anybody that looks at him funny. Yeah. Um, and has claws. <laughs> and is the I, best there is at what he does. It's my turn. Sorry. You said you were going last. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Ooh, she, just, she just parsed you, dude. <laughs> Yeah. I do kind of create cultures for, you know, the the world that I've got the players interacting with. I don't try to micromanage it so much. Um and I know Charlie does say later on in his email that I haven't read yet, you know, he's not talking about micromanaging, but you know, I do have a sort of a broad stroke framework and People are expected to know, okay, your human fighter is from the kingdom of Arborea, and therefore, you know, you've grown up being, you know, you know, lots of, everyone has some kind of, you know, ranger skills, blah, blah, blah. You're very green, you know, you're not a tree hugger necessarily, but, you know, da, 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 you know, and then they decide, well, even though I'm from this place and this is what I grew up believing in, my character is 
a lumberjack. <laughs> I and, thought that was where you were going with that. And an arsonist. <laughs> well, in some ways, his first question leads into the second question, which I think is the real issue he's having. Yeah, so I guess I'll go on to the second part. Okay. Okay. can be thinking on the first part. If you are in the former camp, um, do you, if the ones, you know, you make the culture, how do you handle players that will not follow the world design without it ending in tears? By the way, I am not talking about micromanaging anyone's character, but if you take the time to make your campaign a Viking epic and one or two people insist on playing characters as if they walked off the set of a modern action comedy, it can be quite frustrating. See, now we got down to it. He's not talking about the well, culture in the game. He's talking about the tone. I've got a right. very serious game I want to play, and my players want to clown around. You know, my world goes, okay, Fishtown is here, Port Town is here, here's a river, here's a lake. Okay, this is what we're doing. I don't worry about the cultures. There's some elves. Other than that one game where I tried to have a, a tribe of elves who communicated by farting and tap dancing. <laughs> That's a Vonnegut shout-out, by the way. Um, you know, I kind of wish that... Matt. Figment of imagination. They <laughs> tap dance not, neither do they fart. Yep. Uh, I kind of wish Matt Odinus was on this show because he goes to great lengths to – he's very Viking-oriented because it's, his, it's his, you know, his heritage. So he's got like – we're in Mythgarther and they all have these Viking names we can't pronounce and they all have these attitudes and you know that kind of thing. And he really likes – immerses us in that kind of stuff. So you, of course, play the Swedish chef. No, I don't play the Swedish <laughs> chef. Here, really? Okay. No, I'm playing the backwoods paw rug gnome type. From the swamps. So kind of a Cajun Viking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, guess what you want to call him that. A okay. Cajon. <laughs> but, uh, oh, oh, but, this, but, this, but, this illusion but is going to be like better everything, than <laughs> Everything I've thrown at, it's, it's, it's steeped in culture, but everything I've thrown at him, he's rolled with. Hmm? This is like, okay, you want to be I, – I came up with a, a German – since he was doing Viking slash German, Germanic. So I came up with this like uh, – what is it? Uh, Milton von Punchstein. S- Sir Milton von Punchstein. Lord Milton von Punchstein, who was like the lesser noble of the son of this noble. And he said, okay, let's see where we're going to put Punchstein on the map. And it's like, dude, can I ever phase you with anything? <laughs> I come up with these outrageous characters, and you're just like, okay, we'll just like integrate into the world. That's actually going to play off what I'm going to say. Is the email done, or Um, no? He goes on to say, this question has been reverberating within my brain for a very long time, but after a view of a few threads on Dragonsfoot, it only came to realization in the last few days. I often wonder if this is the reason why even some published worlds fail. Dragonlance and Merp spring to mind as game products. I personally run into this all the time, and though I run a successful game, people keep coming back for more, I get very burned out at DMing because of the lack of character commitment of my players. Thanks for your time and thoughts, DM Charlie. P.S. Glenn, the offer still stands. If you are ever back in Long Beach, bring your dice and drop me an email. I know. Last time, <laughs> what was well, the offer, see, Glenn? Well, see, last last time we were in in uh, California, I we went there with my wife and our two grandkids, and it's like 
dude, we're having a mini con. Can you come and grace us with your presence at the table? And it's like, I can't because we're going to be there the last week, last two days of the con. <laughs> and I, I got my family. I can't like just go run off to a convention. So it's like, dude, you need con. to get your priorities straight. <laughs> yeah. You want to come over here and tell Becky my priorities? <laughs> sure. Come on over. Hey, what happened to that guy that broke his shoulder in a shower in the middle of a con and hardly missed a game? Yeah. Never heard of that. <laughs> wow. That's okay. Well, my subject. And dude, it's the game. It's like, it's like those guys. You and like, I are going to say the same thing, Mike. So go ahead. Anyway, go ahead. You sure? I bet we do. Okay. Well, um, and it does kind of play off what um, Jim was saying in that, you know, you, you kind of roll with it. But I, I think a lot of people, and I kind of implied this when we were talking about um, Chronicles of Amherst, that too many authors of campaign worlds get so enamored of their own world that they just put every little detail – they detail the heck out of it. Right. And the problem with that is you then create an expectation among your players or other people who have read it to follow the topic to the nth degree. And as a DM, I always feel like that's a straitjacket, and I hate those. So in the campaign no. world I run, I've got – in the grand scheme of things, and I've heard this as a criticism of it, it's the one on Dragon's Foot, DF11, Guide to the Realms of Aden, is that uh-huh. it's too small. But uh-huh. to me, it's you know kind of like medieval Europe, or at least half of it. Because in a medieval context, people are not going to know the whole world. They're going to be lucky to know most people don't go more than 20 miles from their house, ever. And if you give a general baseline of here are a few kingdoms and the characters in it, if somebody comes up with a context for a character, say, like Liz was saying, you know, a fighter who doesn't behave like normal fighters should from this region, well, I want to behave, my character to behave like, you know, a Zulu warrior. Well, there's a lot of the world that is not mapped. So perhaps you come from the far south and you're a tribe, you're a fish out of water. You know, generally fighters in this region don't behave that way. But since you want to play as, you know, a Zulu warrior, it's because you're from the Southland and for whatever reason you're up here, you're free to play the character the way you want. Yeah, but what if you don't know that the player is going to play their fighter totally bizarrely? You know, they've said, you know, I'm going to be a fighter and I'm going to be from this kingdom here. And you don't find out until they start playing the game. It's like you're not behaving anything at all like the people from your region would. True. But as Jim was saying earlier, you know, by definition, becoming an adventurer, you're not all there. (laughs) You're going to be a little different. So... You know, I can probably roll with it and say, you know, well, he just uh, he ignores, and especially if he's like a noble or something, because it's like, well, that's why he's off adventuring because he is ostracized by his social community. 
I knew our answers would dovetail. I mean, there's a there's a core issue underneath this too. One of the things that separates tabletop RPGs from computer role playing games is th- this is the thing that the comp- World of Warcraft on lack is what you can easily achieve at a table, which is consensual storytelling. So, in Jim's opinion only, you know, my not reflective of the podcast or any television networks. Um, it's the judge or the DM's job to lay it all out and set up the framework and provide the environment. But within six months or a year, if the group hasn't started determining how the world functions by their interactions uh, and building a story as a group, I don't think things are going the way they're supposed to go. Because like you were saying, it's, it's, it, it, the, I mean, we've all probably been that judge who had the, you know, especially when we were young, had the very elaborate module that set up the railroad one way and the players just wouldn't do it. Well, that's what players do. And that's part of the advantage of tabletop role-playing yep. games. You've got to roll yeah. that stuff. Cause As that's a DM, all, yeah, you've got to improv. That's the whole fun of the thing. And <laughs> like Glenn was saying just a second ago about Matt and Punchstein, you know, that's the other advantage. Most of my kingdoms have, you know, three or four major cities mapped out, but that's it. So, you know, well, we need to add – somebody wants to be from Punchstein. Okay, well, we'll stick Punchstein over here, you know. Boom. There you go. Yeah, a little duchy right there. And right can, there, yeah. And, and the you way don't... it can start building its own storyline is if you have a player who's having issues. Like I want to play, you know, a paladin who goes around torturing halflings. The campaign setting responds to those actions, and the problem solves itself. Yep. Well, you can do that once or twice. And then, yeah, assuming you're not strung up, you're certainly not a paladin anymore. I mean, yeah. I'm a big fan of saying yes. Can I try this? Sure. Yes. Try it. Well, a couple of observations about you were saying that the, some authors fall into the trap of getting too detailed and too in. But doesn't it happen to like writers in general too? They, some of them get so wrapped up in their novel or whatever they're coming in, and either they never finish it or something happens. Yeah, and that's why I think it's rare that a movie, TV, or fiction book can be transformed into a good RPG setting. That's just my opinion. Right. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, because they love that, they get so into the nitty-gritty of it. But especially yeah. especially in serialized storytelling, like TV shows and comic books, how many times have you read an author interview where the author said at such and such point the characters started writing themselves? And he's talking about characters that are all in his head, not even yeah. out real, play, real people in front of him at a table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I noticed that <clears throat> you said that happened. Well, the most obvious example, I guess, is Forgotten Realms. Oh, um, yeah. But I think TSR was smart about that because by the time Ed Greenwood got into TSR with the Forgotten Realms, he'd already had like, you know, file cabinets full of realms stuff that he wrote since he was, what, eight or something like that. And they were smart enough to put out the core and then, like, sort of parcel it out. You know what I mean? In different yeah, sets, but- different supplements, different box sets, different this. So you don't have that option. You have that option of not getting overwhelmed. With- and yet, and yet, the more stuff <clears throat> there is, the more, as a DM, I always felt anyway obligated to, well, if I'm going to run it correctly – Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to get all this stuff. And then, like you said, 
well, with uh, Greenwood that started out fine, but in the end, they had ended up getting how many different authors, each writing their own books and basically putting mm-hmm. more detail to Forgotten Realms beyond what Ed Greenwood mm-hmm. originally planned? I know, but that that is the DM's problem. That's the DM getting so wrapped up in the world. Well, can't. and so, you know, at one point they got to go, okay, we put it out. You don't have to use it, but we put it out. There it is. But then where's the line of, okay, we're going to play in Forgotten Realms, but just about everything you know is wrong. Because I'm the DM and I can do what I want. And then the art, well, we're not really playing the Forgotten Realms then, are we? You know? I mean, it's a line that you run into. It's well, a line. Well, let's, let's, help, let's, help, let's help DM Charlie out. Okay. Yeah, we're getting off topic. Your players. And he does mention, you know, how do you handle it? Without it ending in tears. <laughs> well, okay, that, that depends yeah. on if killing characters will make them tear up or not. Because that's the first thing you do. Your your, your Vikings show up in the longboat and decide it's an episode of Friends, and they all die. And <laughs> next character. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's certainly the old school way of handling it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, hope that was useful, Charlie. If not, sorry, Charlie. Oh. Or- <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> okay. Next email. Our, our next email is from Tom Murphy. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. Tom says, hey, my D&D group is decidedly new school. We are all under 25 and were raised on 3.5, Pathfinder, and 4E. I'm sorry. Recently, my desire for rules-light systems brought me to the OSR and basic D&D. As the perma-DM in my group, I started our latest campaign using swords and wizardry, warning my players that they might have to relearn some of their long-standing habits. We've been playing for a couple of months now, and they are hating it. They can't come to terms with the lack of skills, feats, and such nor are they adjusting to the lower hit points and higher lethality of classic play. Some of this is my fault. I had some teething issues in running a new style of system, but some of the problem is that they can't see where their role as players has changed. Do you have any advice for how to ease new school players into a classic D&D play style? I love the show. Keep up the good work. Tom. Yeah, get new players. Ah, hey, hey, hey. So it can be done. It can be done. I've seen yeah. it done. You know, part, part. I true. think um, this would be my opinion. Something that you might do to try to baby step them into swords and wizardry. You might try first taking them to castles and crusades, because it has a lot in common with the D twenty system, but it's been pared down extensively and so you're you're slowly getting them away from it they've it's got a lot of stuff that they'll be familiar with you know ascending ac etc but you don't really have feats anymore and you know you it's it's just it's more basic than d20 is but it still has elements of d20 that they would recognize and you might get them into that and then slowly start nudging them over into swords and wizardry. But that would be my opinion. Um, so there you go. <laughs> I, 
I feel for him because DM Todd out of Gateway Games did this. This is the, this was how they founded the Retro D and D League. They took a bunch of players uh, from teenage up into mid thirties, so it would include the under twenty fives, which is about my nephew's age, and uh, played every single version of D and D there was, and with it's the same idea. characters. They, I think they used a rod of seven parts as their device, their plot device to get them from system to system. And hmm. uh, the young players, like fourteen, fifteen. Had no problem adapting, and the uh, 20-somethings seemed to be okay with it. Some of the older players, like early 30s, that were really, really rooted in their Pathfinder tended to drop out because they preferred the other style of game, and that's just... And, and, and to some extent, in our Dungeon Car Classics group, we've been going through the same system where about half of us are old school, a uh, third of us came from the Retro D&D League, and then there are some people who came straight from 4E and Pathfinder who have taken the longest to adjust to the different style of play. But we have fun. Yeah, but yeah, it's, three, but, but, but it's okay. not a consistently all age 25 table. I mean, there's women, yeah. kids, older guys like me. Some people who play like 3, 3, 5, 4, and Pathfinder can't break that Dungeons and Paperwork mindset. I have Sometimes. the advantage of having played all those systems, so I just, you know, if I'm playing AD&D, and, I play AD&D. If I'm playing basic, and, um, I'm playing basic. True. And and sorry, Jim, some of them have that same thing with DCC, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's that's kind of what it gets down to. I mean, as much as we love classic D&D, and that's what our thing is about, it, you play what you like to play. Right. And I... As far as these guys, you know, there are going to be some people that just prefer Pathfinder or 3.0, 3.5. I'm certainly not one of them, but, you know, if you're having – like Jim says, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. That's right. My nephews um, love 4E. They love it to death. They've played it for years now. Mm-hmm. I do think there is something, too, when you've learned on 3E, it's a lot like when you – some people I know who learned – on chivalry and sorcery, or tunnels and trolls, you know, to a, or the fantasy trip, they just—I mean, arguably—they're old school. They started yep. gaming in the late '70s, mm-hmm. early '80s, but they just have a different set of expectations to their game. You know, I often surmise how 4E would have went if they hadn't just inundated with all these core books that were kind of expensive mm-hmm. because that's part of it. That's a good part of it right there to buy in it. The buy-in on 4E is a lot more bucks than even three, five. Well, you know, Photoshopping the background image of every single page until you can't parse the test cost a lot of money, right? Liz? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> every page. But Liz's answer was great. Yeah, and I will probably, this is about the only piece of advice I can give, because this was, when we were doing Castles and Crusades, that was the big deal, is a lot of people from 3.0 trying to play Castles and Crusades and trying to wrap their head around it. What we found was always the best thing to do as a DM is try to point out to them that in the end, having all those skills and feats limits you. It does. Because in old, true old school play, you can try anything. And if your DM's a good one, will go, you know, hey, take a roll. Now, you may not have much of a chance to do it, but you can do anything. Well, I think of old school and like 4E and 3E like my, my grandsons. Great Gage is very 
cautious and he wants to know if he can do something and hope he learned to do it. Gavin will just go out there and do it. And no, climb the fence, jump off the stuff. He doesn't think about it. And that's an old school gamer right there. Can I swing from the chandelier? Give me a dex, give me a, give me a saving or dex roll. Okay, fine. You swing from the chandelier. Yeah. Didn't need a skill for that. And most everything in castles and crusades of that type are based on attributes. So you do a dex check or you do a strength check. Hey, well, I want to do a cleave or a great cleave. Well, if you hit. Give me a strength check. See, with- I love that kind of stuff because it's it's like a compromise between the ultra skill of three, five, and four, and the basic, you know, the older school stuff. It's kind of a compromise where you're just using stats. Yeah, I mean, you've got the attributes anyway. Why not use them for multiple yes, task resolution? I, I really don't think they're used enough. Now, if only it didn't have ascending armor class, Glenn would like castles and crusades. I had a copy once. <laughs> It's a good game. Then I game. Threw, it all, threw it all over for old school. And, yep. you know, I, this is a podcast about basic D&D, but for anyone who is coming from third edition and up and is wanting to try to, you know, go backwards and, you know, make things a little more streamlined, you know, I would always recommend that they start with Castles and Crusades. Yeah. Because that's that's a baby step backward. There's a lot of stuff that you still recognize in the rules, and it's teaching you to think outside of the the feats trap. Yeah. You know, that's you can, good- yeah, you've got your you've got the feats that you're used to, and you want to use them, but they're not there. But just you know, but like Mike was saying, you know, I want to cleave. It's like, well, you know, do a strength attribute check, you know. If you hit the person, then roll against your attribute, and if you make it, you have successfully cleaved. You know that kind of thing. Right. Well, and, and Tom, yeah, then have your have your players roll up two or three characters so they don't get to get them over that cognitive hump of this is my guy and he has to live. Yeah, yeah, because that's the other thing you can't get too attached. Now that's something CC taught, and that's a good thing. And, you know, if that's even an issue, start them at second or third level. You know, if that's they're just determined to be attached to their characters, there's nothing wrong with starting higher level. Um, if, you know, if that's what you got to do to have a have a fun game, then, you know, do it. And just remember, if you can't get help with Classic, please get help <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> And see, and, that's, and some people stay with with castles and crusades, and that's okay too, because yeah. it started them thinking outside the box, like basic does. And you can use any iteration, or at least any of the pre two thousand iterations of D anD D products with castles and crusades with right. very little modification. That's right. Even second edition is a good step for step in. Even. Even, <laughs> even. Yeah. except for proficiencies. But what do, yeah. we, what, do, what, do I, what do I say about it on Thinkos Hammer? It's modular. <laughs> don't use it if you don't have to. Anyway, hey, true. There's your answer. Okay, thanks, Tom. Uh-huh. Let we us know how it goes. Yeah, we hope one of yeah, those please. things will will work for you. Any more emails? We have more emails. Our next email is from DM Kojo. Hey, Kojo. Hey, Kojo. And Kojo writes, Hi, Sodcasters. I wanted to share a thought on mass combat with you based on your conversations in episode 76. (laughs) 
You know, we're going to be doing episode 90, and we're still going to be getting emails. I really loved episode 76, and I want to tell you about mass combat. <laughs> oh, it's popular. It really hit a nerve with mass combat. Everybody <laughs> wants to talk about it. Or as Liz and I call it, mess combat. Yeah. <laughs> Except I think three of the four hosts don't. Well, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> they made me talk about it on the show. <laughs> anyway, Kojo is saying, one system that I recently discovered is from the Helm's Deep supplement of Decipher's Lord of the Rings RPG. Their system for resolving battles is very intriguing to me. Basically, each type of unit has several modifiers, such as proficiency in ranged combat, melee combat, toughness, movement, command, etc. Each unit type also has a size factor and various maneuvers they can perform. Some types have special maneuvers, too. Once combat starts, you apply any terrain and situational modifiers, determine initiative, determine the leader's positions, execute maneuvers, launch attacks, determine casualties, and determine the leader's fate. Then go again until the battle is over. It isn't really as complicated as it sounds, and it only takes up a small part of the book. The largest part being the descriptions of the maneuvers and statistics for sample units. I think I may use this the next time I need to resolve mass combat. I may add a mechanic for allowing the PC's abilities to affect the outcome of the battle in some manner, but otherwise, I really like it as is. Thanks, DM Kojo. Well, Liz, you want to start the roundtable? <laughs> um, well, without having seen it myself... From the description, I mean, he does say it's not as complicated as it sounds. But to me, from the description, it sounds very complex. <laughs> it's, like, I it don't, yeah, it's like, I don't know if I want to do all this. But well, then I've said from the get-go, you know, I never do mass combat at all if I could possibly avoid it. <laughs> so it's I'm a hard sell on anything. <laughs> Jim? I, it sounds great, and it's surely simpler than a sand table full of you know hundreds of miniatures. But uh, so, if I was ever in a situation where I needed mass combat, I'd give it a look and a try. Why not, Glenn? I'll consider it. Although my favorite one is using a D two with a representative from the other group, from the uh, players, which is heads I win, tails <laughs> you win. Um, it doesn't sound as complicated as say the. Uh, Dueling rules from 2E's Combat and Tactics, but it's still kind of uh, too much work. So uh, I'll have to say no. Okay. It's all on you, Mike. Well, as the only, I think, actual war gamer here, uh, it That's sounds... At best. Rel- what? That's tenuous at best. (laughs) It sounds simpler than a lot of them, um, although it does still sound like it's a blow-by-blow type combat system, which if if your players are the type who want to go through that sort of, you know, blow-by-blow, how the battle is going, seesawing back and forth, then it sounds like it could probably work. Um, If they're not, if they just want to get to the results, they'll probably get bored even with something that similar or simple i like the you know factoring in of maneuvers however it sounds like with each unit you know unless you're going to have only just two or three really big units it could still bog down 
I mean, you know, if you don't mind taking, say, an hour or even 45 minutes to do it, then, you know, it should work out fine for you. Um, I guess if you decide to take a plunge, let us know how it goes. And we can have Jim, Glenn, and Liz once again say, well, that sounds great, but we'd never do it. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I take, take I, the plunge and do a blow by blow. I don't want that to be mistaken for poo pooing the idea because. <laughs> oh, no, no. Of course not. It, it, I mean, we, the next email, the, these two things kind of go together. If, if it, if your group likes doing war games and you want to make that a part of your role playing game, then go for it. Mm-hmm. And, and get a great system like Kojo wrote about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it certainly is better than, say, you know, dealing with a lot of Avalon Hill or SPI level board war games of the era. Or even Gary's Alexander the Great, you know. Do they have blow by blows? Oh, it's an actual war game. I mean, you've got the map, you've got individual counters for the, for the units, you've got turns and battles and melee, you know, it's, it's pretty intricate. Well, you gave me an idea for a card game, so... Listen, yeah. listen to you name-checking old Gideon Games box set games. Wow. Actually, that was Avalon Hill, but yeah. yeah I'll, hey, I was back in the 70s. I was a big board game guy. I liked war games. Um, so, I, you know, hey. I wouldn't mind sitting down with you, Mike, and play, and play find an old copy of Naval War and just... Blasting the hell out of each other. Card game? Yeah. Card game? Yeah. I've never been a card game player, though. Eh, Yeah. Never really. Well, less Uno, you know, but I'm not sure that counts. (laughs) Nuclear War. That's my idea of a good board game. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, hope that helps, Gojo. Yeah. And our last email is from Joel. Hey, Joel. Hey, Joel. Joel writes, Sodcasters. In one of your recent podcasts, you discussed games within a game. According to your discussion, actually playing poker when, in-game, your characters are playing poker is no longer role-playing. By extension, if you act out a stirring speech your character gives, are you now improvisation acting and not role-playing? In a similar vein, you discussed using tables to determine outcomes, e.g. rolling dice to determine the results of the poker game. Aren't the additions that shall not be named truer to that spirit of role-playing, as character skills and knowledge depend on dice rolls rather than on player skills and knowledge? Finally, I was reading a blog that asserted that playing an RPG is not storytelling. What do you think? Looking forward to your responses, Joel. Sir, let me give you a one-word answer to that. Bull. (laughs) Now, now. I'm always role-playing. I see where he's coming from, and it is a fuzzy line, Um, although I don't remember the conversation exactly, but I would probably say that the tables thing, at least in my mind, was more to get get some results and get the game moving rather than sitting and playing a a game of poker or two, and – but again, and this is something Liz and I go back and forth on about skills every now and then. The problem with, you know, the player, because that's a situation where it's not your character's skill, it's your player's skill. Say it, I mean, at poker, for example. Right. Or and, at giving a speech. Or at giving a speech. And 
I I always feel like a player who's willing to go that extra mile certainly should get kudos for it. But yeah. are you basically saying I, for example, can never play a character who is a bard because I personally can't sing? Yeah, I can't sing. I can't read music. I can't well, play an instrument. Yeah, I know nothing mean, about how music works. Right. So it's... I, and I see where he comes from because one of the tenets of old school is player skill as much as character skill. You know, rather than just roles for everything, using your brain and coming up with in, in innovative ways of dealing with situations. But you I know, think you I, can go too far with that. I don't. I don't. You know, that kind of thing to me is like it's all role playing. Because if I'm coming up with a with a fantastic plan that my three inch fighter would never think of, I'm not going to stop and say, "Oh, he'd never think of that." We're doomed. No, I'm going to use the plan. Okay. Well, sometimes <laughs> uh, I would I would actually I have played characters where I've thought of a uh, an innovative plan that I wasn't sure my character would think of, and the DM wouldn't say anything. I would give myself say an intelligence check. I've done that. And if I blow it, then I have, well, my character doesn't think of anything, even though I personally have thought of something. Uh, and the flip side of that, and this is part of what Mike and I have argued about with skills. You know, say, say someone at the table is, has a character who has a very high charisma. And by charisma, I don't mean they're good looking. I mean, they're very charismatic. They have the gift of gab. They should be very, very good at convincing the people around them to either, you know, tell them gossip, you know, or, you know, hey, you know, maybe let me have an extra drink at the bar, whatever. You know, they're, they're very good at getting people to like them and do what they want. Right. But the player themselves, isn't really good at schmoozing like that. And when you try to make them role play what their character is doing to try to get the NPC to go along with whatever it is they want, you know, they're very awkward at it. And, you know, if you're going just by what the player is doing at the table, you can't really say realistically, well, you've succeeded. But they're playing a character who, you know, it's no problem to them. It comes naturally. Well, you know, what do you do? We've you know, there's a place where you have to have roles. As a DM, I'm willing to have a certain amount of, okay, I'm going to try and convince the guard to let us pass. And it may come down to roll your charisma. Mm-hmm. If I know the player and I know the player can't pull this off in performance, Right. So I'm willing to hand wave that to a certain extent. But if you got the chops, you do it first. And if all else fails, roll it. Yeah. That, that, to me, at, you know, those sort of roles are the last resort, not the first. Right. But they have to be there. Otherwise, well, frankly, what's the point of a lot of, you know, basically intelligence, wisdom, and charisma as attributes you throw out? Yeah. Because it's, it's the player. It's not the character. We, mm-hmm. we talked a lot about this sort of thing on that episode we did about the art of role playing. You know, do you narrate mm-hmm. what your character does or do you actually act it out? And, um, I'm sure, uh, 
I, it was probably me said something like, well, if you get down to where you're actually playing a poker game, then you're not role playing anymore. And I probably said it in about that tone. Well, mm-hmm. if taken out of context, that could be seen as a definitive statement, uh, with, you know, an on off state. I don't ever mean anything like that. All this stuff right. we're talking about are just a set of dials on your game panel. And you can, with settings that are more than on and off, you know, whatever level your group's comfortable with or you guys are comfortable with. Cause like if you had a whole group of, D and Ders who love to play poker, that would be awesome to sit down and I think that maybe in the Dungeon Master's Guide there is this, but sit down and create a fantasy poker game and actually sit there and play it out as the characters and maybe even work in the dice rolls. That would be and you know, poker. play poker with tarot cards. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I am not, you know, and I'm not above doing that kind of thing myself because there's always going to be a situation of trying to get the DM's attention. I want to go talk to this noble, see if we can get our buddy out of jail. And everybody else, oh, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm, and then it's like, I just want to do this. Okay. Either he says I do it or I roll it. I don't get a chance to act it out is what I'm saying because yeah. all the other people at the table. Well, back yeah. To and, well, and off that, it's do you role play every single incident in your character's entire life? No, because Ugh. there are times where you just skim over to get to the adventure or the action yeah. or four hours, four hours buying flour. Yes. <laughs> or or two hours equipping a ship. <laughs> Six hours of movie trying to walk to a volcano. Hi, Tim. Hi, Chase. <laughs> anyway, well. And what was the second part? We got so wrapped up in Um, the first part. Let's see. It says, finally, I was reading a blog that that asserted that playing an RPG is not storytelling. What do you think? I can say I have played in games, role-playing games, where it wasn't storytelling. But I don't think you can make that absolute statement. It's the same dial setting answer, though. I mean, if you play 4E, if you're playing 4E D&D the way it's written, that is more of a tactical miniatures game than it is a role-playing game. More. It's not, I'm not saying it's absolutely one or the other, but it's much more of a tactical miniatures game than it is a role-playing game as compared to basic D&D, where you cannot use miniatures at all. And in 1979 with Frontier Forts of Kelnor, the Judges Guild supplement, I played, uh, original D&D, which was pretty much run by that particular DM as a tactical miniatures war game. There was you know, virtually no role-playing in it at all. You know what? If they want to do such a hotshot thing on D&D next or go back to the old stuff, they could t- they could remarket 4E as a, like, D&D battle. Well, I'm... I have heard, I don't know if it's true or not, this is total speculation, but that 4E was kind of aiming for the Warhammer Fantasy battles effect. If Warhammer Fantasy slash World of Warcraft. Well, you know, that too. Yeah. Um, That's the vibe I got when we played it. And and I'll just say this last thing. You know, there were, you know, rules lawyers and rule-obsessive people well before the year 2000. That's true. Well before role-playing games. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, gamers this is are not, new. you know, you can't, well, it's too much, well, maybe it is too much rules, but those type of players or DMs have always been out there. We made, so, 
In college, we made one of our first DMs so angry arguing rules with him one night, he blew his universe up and never ran again. He says, he, he described it. The entire multiverse explodes. Your characters are dead. And that was the I, I did that. I did that in the middle of a Ravenloft uh, running I-6 once. I basically said, no, 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 we're just going to kill this right here. <laughs> wow. Well, no, because obviously I don't know enough about the rules, as you love to point out, you know, so I really shouldn't be running a game, should I? You want to see obsessive? And it just floored everybody because they're like, but, but, <laughs> but we don't want to run the game. Well, you know, if you're going to keep questioning everything I do, then I'm not going to. And yep. that's the final arbiter right there. Yep. I'll take my multiverse and go home. Yeah. <laughs> you want you want to see the obsessive DM watch watch the movie Zero Charisma. <laughs> but uh blog blog. I, 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 now that guy who ran that blog, he may consider storytelling not part of role playing games. And right. that's perfectly good for him, you know. That if he and his players are happy with that, then great. I, I, I love playing in Shannon's game, but I want Liz to DM this group in a game. Why? Mm. Yeah, that, yeah, that's still waiting that, for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kevin and I are still waiting for her Boot Hill Call of Cthulhu crossover. And Liz, yeah, well, it's never going to happen now because Deadlands is out. That's true. They actually made it. That was, that was surprising. That was a running joke we had all through the nineteen early nineteen nineties. Was you know our group would get together to play and we go, hey, well, what's what are we playing this time? It's like, oh, Liz is finally ready with her Boot Hill Call of Cthulhu crossover. Yeah. And, we were totally making that up and thought it was funny. It's like, well, oh, then, there's a real game now. Deadlands came out. Yeah. And it's like, wow, that's awesome. That's- uh, I've got a copy of Tune here if you want me. <laughs> well, my, my point oh, I was I just want to see some of us pop up and try and argue rules with Liz and then see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I, I, no, I, that doesn't work. I'll give you a clue. It won't be my character that does it. Nah, not, eh, not me either because I know my wife. You, you, no. you try and tell me that Cobble, that Cobalt's can't save versus sleep spells. Yeah. Smack you. Yeah. <laughs> you can't jump over buildings in a single bound. That everything in the world will save, be able to save versus sleep spell except my character. <laughs> <laughs> well, I well, you, hope, uh, that, yeah. hope that explains uh, our point of view. <laughs> Joel, uh, thanks for the email. Yeah, thank you. Our, our emails are like an evening with Kevin Smith times four. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that is the end of our of our email bag for today. And now the long awaited and promised voicemails. Dun, dun, dun. First up DM Gojo. Of course. Twice the Kojo, twice the fun. Indeed. Uh, half the heartburn. Hello there, Sod Meisters. This is DM Kojo. Calling in, just finished listening to the latest episode where you guys talked about Eldritch Wizardry. And uh, first off, really enjoy when you have John Peterson on, the insight he brings from his years of research into the origins of D&D. It's really interesting. I'm reading his book now, but I'm still kind of in the early stages. So I'm really getting into it. also enjoyed his uh, magazine article, Kydex Magazine number two. Uh, on the topic of psionics, uh, I've always liked psionics. I can't say I've always understood them, and I never played the brown book version. Uh, so all I have is references, first edition and second edition. If 
but I always liked the idea. I always did kind of view them as uh, a spell point system, as kind of like John had mentioned. I do agree with that. I think that was a way to have an alternate way of having magic-like abilities uh, in a different kind of format. But I wondered, uh, my favorite version of Psionics has always been second edition D&D, and that's primarily because I think they really simplified things, and the complete book of Psionics is uh, a great resource for my 2E campaign. Uh, I like the fact that Psionics are fairly limited in all the versions, uh, so that not everybody gets them. But when they do, it's kind of a nice little extra to have. I have a player in my campaign right now that has the all-around sight uh, ability, and that's pretty interesting. That comes in handy. But I wondered if you guys would ever consider implementing psionics from second edition into a classic game uh, using that psionics handbook. I think that would be easy enough to do, and... Sounds like a much simpler system than what the classic game had. And just want to hear what you thought about that. All right. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Coach. Yeah. Um, a lot of people liked John Peterson coming onto the show. They really enjoyed him, you know, and his opinions on things. Uh, hope you enjoy the book. Like I said, I, I probably, I'm going to start reading it again pretty soon, just because I'm out of stuff to read, and it's such a good read. I'm, I'm like two D&D books behind there. I've got to read that, and i got to read of Dyson Men. Before we get mm. into answering his voicemail, can I uh, call this meeting to order and nominate Kojo for number one Save-or-Die Acolyte? Dun-dun-dun! Mm. I second. All yeah, in but, favor? Mm, are, uh, we gonna, are we going to have to, you know, like, uh, do some kind of ritual or anything, or... If it was Vince, just take it favor? as red. If it was Vince, to be all in favor. <laughs> <laughs> and the crowd goes mild. As long as we don't have to put on our funny hats or anything, then I'm all for it. Yeah, sounds good. Ever Congratulations, more. DM Gojo. Ever and more. Anyway. As for the psionics, well, you know, tacos notwithstanding. <laughs> I uh, love some psionic tacos. Yeah, I don't see why you couldn't use. I'm not that up on the uh, complete book of psionics. And neither am I since I don't like psionics. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I really kind of liked how Tui first treated psionics, which was just, you know, here are monsters. They have special abilities. Move on. Now, I would would make a little exception, a minor exception to that in the only – Sonic system I really liked was Carcosis because they treat it just like spells. You have spell points, you have like 12 psionic abilities, you roll to see if you're psionic, they handle it like magic, and boom, it's done. Well, that's ironic. And the basic D&D genesis of Sonics was to build a spell point, a point-based spell system. Well, I'm not D&D. sure about, I think, I think it's spell points, but I'm not sure. But I mean, it's like 12 powers, that's it, cool. Yeah, whereas, you know, there was always, like, the attack and defense modes and the, you know. A bunch of matrixes and tables and then yeah. your head explodes and you didn't even have a psionic attack done on you. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I disliked psionics even before this phenomenon, but now looking back on it, it just looks like Gary was trying to 
put anime in D&D? Well, I asked Gary about this when he was still alive, and he uh-huh. said, you know, I, I liked his answer. and says, I have never had a problem with monsters having psionics. Uh-huh. It was players having player characters having psionics he decided he really didn't like well see that's why i'm with liz that's a lot of matrices and rolling to go through just to get to the same point where the mind flare eats your brain anyway yeah <laughs> yeah can't just say okay he does an attack make a save or you take forty thousand points of damage here. this is like this is like cyber 2020 uh somebody doing a net run one of the hackers doing a net run okay we'll just take a break for about 20 to 30 minutes while they fight the computer <laughs> a dozen different role uh, role-playing games have gone into the answers of this ga- of this save or die episode damn straight okay well thanks gojo hope thanks, we Go. sort of answered your question and now rust Never sleeps. Uh, hey, this is Russ. I gotta admit, uh, I kind of agree with Mike there. Uh, roll survival planes kind of seems stupid. I mean, what's next? Uh, roll for overcast? I don't know. Maybe if you're playing uh, Channel Five, the RPG action news. I don't know. It just seems kind of weird to roll for bunny rabbits and green grass. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Later. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Rusty boy. <laughs> he is so right because that's just uh, Don't what? don't don't mince words, Michael. Tell us how you really Yeah. Mean. I like proficiencies. <laughs> yes, Mike just likes the the voicemail because Rust was saying Mike is right. <laughs> I agree with Mike. <laughs> well, it's it's correct. What can I do? What can I say? <laughs> I'm sorry. I was I was looking at my tables for generating grass and bunnies. Exactly. Yeah, I think we should have one just a table just for Liz. It's the uh, bunnies and burrows influence on D and D or something. Yeah. Anyway, if you'd like to send a voicemail, send it to nine four zero five three six thirty seven sixty three or, or we'll, three sod. Or we will take emails too. It's. Uh, <laughs> Save die podcast at gmail.com. And thanks for all the feedback. Now, let's. No, we don't have time eight. for the rest of the show, so we'll see you next We'll see it. Yeah, I was just thinking that. I was like, wow, we really talked a lot. Anyway, we'll go to our usual important announcements about stuff, and then we'll return to DM's Workshop and start talking about using sci fi in your games. So you guys are in the Misty Mug. What are you doing? I am buying a Bloody Mermaid lip line, as always. Sunshine comes out from the back. She actually needs some help with the problem. What problem? There's rats in the cellar. Oh, God. Giant rats, I presume. I don't know. Do you want to go check it out? So you guys make your way down into the cellar. Sure enough, amongst the crates and barrels, there are nine giant rats. Remember the last time we fought giant rats? They nearly killed us. In the nest of the giant rats is 2,000 copper pieces. Huh. 20 gold. One's copper. It's 2,000. <laughs> we came here to help Sunshine with their problem. We had to fight the giant rats. Initiative. Yeah. Check out the Delvers podcast at burnedeffects.com. But this isn't science. It's more like black magic. Better. Stronger. Faster. Oh, yeah. 
It's all coming together. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. DM's Workshop. We're actually to the topic of the show now. That was a lot of stuff we had. Yeah. Oh, it wasn't that much stuff. We just had a lot to say. (laughs) Four 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 emails, two voicemails, and we talked a lot about them all. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Three of us are long talkers. But now we're talking about science fiction in your fantasy RPG of choice. Usually it should be classic D&D if you're listening to this podcast, but, you know, tacos. Are we going to get a sponsorship from, like, Taco Bell now? You keep mentioning these. Well, I keep saying taco, but I don't say Taco Bell, so, yeah, you know. I mean, there's right. lots of taco places, you know. Well, I could dub in a sound of a bell. Every time you say taco, uh, taco, bang. Uh, <laughs> well, if we're going to be, you know, promoting anybody's tacos, it probably should be someplace like, say, Fuzzy's Taco Shop or, you know. I don't know, because it would work, you know, make a run for the keep on the borderlands. Yeah. yeah, that was good. That was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this could work. Yes, it could be Taco Bueno anyway. So. Yeah, anyway, space science fiction. Now, as we've said before on this show, you know, having sci-fi mixed with fantasy was really a big thing in the 70s. You know, with the birth of D&D, a lot of modules or supplements at the time just didn't bat an eye at it. Well, it's endemic to the game because it's uh, all through the Appendix N literature, too. Yep. No, dying Earth all over the place. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think it was Appendix N, but Saberhagen's Books of Swords, you know. Was, there's always – who is it? I think it was Arthur C. Clarke who said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah, remember that because that's going to come up frequently in this episode. Yeah, yeah, look at, yeah. Look at Ash. Oh, Boomstick? Yeah, Boomstick and ah. his other stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's all through the genre, particularly at that period. I think it's not quite as accepted nowadays, though. I think probably, you know, around mid-late 80s or so, it got, you know, for instance, I could never picture a starship or... You know, robots in Kryn or that sort of thing. However, Mistara, I seem to recall, didn't their Blackmore have technology involved in it? Yes, it did. Yeah. They had the whole Blackmore series from Dave, which, uh, like, they have uh, the infamous, uh, what's the one? Barrier Peaks. Uh, No, that um, that was Gygax. I think you're thinking of City of the Gods. Yeah, that too. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Temple of the Frog. There was a middle one in there. I can't think of the name though. Or yeah, but those those one. all kind of blended it. Those all kind of blended it. See, what part of the problem I have is I always, whenever I was reading them or people running them and stuff like that, I always had effect had a had a feeling of these like middle aged bearded guys snickering in the background. Okay. Uh, why? Because it was kind of Gonzo, or well, oh, I, you know, I like Dumb Gonzo. It's, it's it's more like it was like get it It's sci-fi and fantasy. Get it? It's, Hit, the, it's, in the, the, it's the holy hand grenade of Antioch. Yeah, but it's like they, they were they were yeah. like hitting you in the. It's it's kind of like Tuttles and Trolls strikes some people. They're hitting you in the ribs. Get it? It's a joke, you know, <laughs> that mm-hmm. kind of thing. 
nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Uh-huh. I mean, it is funny in the old, those old Phineas Fingers when Bored Flack reaches into his bag and says, let me get my wand of automatic missile fire, and out comes an AK-47. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. There's, and there's Snarf Quest with that robot in there. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I never really gotten into Snarf Quest, though. I don't know why. I mean, I really, you know, the art, was that Elmore? Yes. Yeah, that was Elmore. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously Elmore's art is awesome, but I just never really got into SnarkQuest. I don't know why. Well, maybe a good way to start this is we could all each tell the first time we were playing in a game as youngsters when this happened. Okay. When when did you run across your first thing that you went, hey, wait a minute? All right. We'll start with you then, Jim. Oh, okay. Um. <laughs> what a brilliant idea! I wanted to hear Liz's. You'll you'll hear mine eventually. Um, we started before there were any campaign settings or anything that long ago, and uh, our first big campaign that we played in the longest was my brother's, and he'd read Robert Asprin's Another Fine Myth, and none of the rest the book had just come out, so none of the rest of us had read it. So that's what he based his original campaign world off of. So we're running oh, around. Wow. We're running around. My magic users getting shot at with these crazy bolts that do all kinds of weird stuff and i think it's magic so i don't know any different until at the end of the adventure we ended up with the d hopper and uh all we knew was it was a uh not having read the books we're just playing like our characters were like okay what do these dials do zap you're in another dimension and we played with and, that d hopper for forever and you know for D D, planar travel is part of the part and parcel so yeah and and he used that because he took us uh to you know to Gamma World to Boot Hill. Then he created his own system for what world we would end up in the dimensions because we didn't know the setting, so we were lost for a while. It turned into a whole campaign thing. That was our first one. Cool, Liz. <laughs> you know, I honestly do not remember the first time I ran into technology in a D and D game. You know, I'm trying to think back on it, and nothing really jumps out at me as, oh, this was when, you know, this was the first time I, I came across that. I want to say it probably was not until I was, you know, playing in some, in a module. It certain mm-hmm. it never occurred to me to do it personally before seeing it elsewhere. Okay. Well, I'd probably have to say it was, um, and I suppose, will artifacts count? Some of them Because do. there's, there are some artifacts that just scream, um, you know, technology. I think it was when we were playing, uh, City State, the Invincible Overlord, and, uh, we managed to find a way to control the um, servant of Luco. Right. Well, that's not technology at all. That's just magical power armor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, it's just a giant robot that does what he's told. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's that, but probably the one that sticks out is, of course, Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. Oh, what a good adventure. Um, and after the 1E DMG came out, you know, it's like everybody in our group wanted to go to Boot Hill and Gamma World, especially Gamma World. They want to go to Gamma World, get all sorts of tech stuff, then bring it back and start hunting down beings in the deities and demigods. I got an AK-47. I'm going to go kill Tiamat. 
the pretty uh, much. Hey, at North Texas, when Michael Curtis ran the Great Stonehill Laser Massacre, that was fun. I mean, it's a one-off con game, but it was fun kicking in the door to a whole arena full of goblins and orcs and being armed. <laughs> and that's when I shot him, Your Honor. That's right. <laughs> but uh, hey, Expedition of the Barrier Peaks was, uh, even though it was published for AD&D, it was written for basic D&D originally. It was a tournament module, right? That's true. That's true. Um, John Peterson mentioned that. That, uh, Tomb of Horrors, and uh, one other. I can't remember. Except the original version he just called the Horrible Tomb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, Lost Caverns of Sochanth. That was the third one. All for basic. So. Oh, the unpronounceable one. Okay. Yeah, so Trotter, Igwa, Wool, Woogie, Woog, or whatever. <laughs> I one, see. The one with Swagans. Huh? Sahogan. I was just trying to work in Swagan oh. into it somehow. Sahogan? Uh, Sahogan! <laughs> okay, so Glenn? Well, it was, I think this kind of colored my up till recently opinion of sci fi and fantasy mixed, which is bleh. Uh, I had a brief run in in the early 80s with Barrier Peaks, a short session, and. The guy who, I mean, I'm sure it's a good module, but not the way he ran it. Uh, <laughs> well, it's a killer dungeon, Dad, so it's supposed to no, kill you. I, no, no, that's not the point. I mean, it, and, and also those years I spent playing Gamma World where I was utterly bored because it wasn't going anywhere. Well, but, but a bad GM can ruin the best game in the world. But, yeah, Barrier Peaks was like, oh, you find this thing that shoots lightning bolts out and it's like a blaster or this thing that does about the fourth time where he's trying to put it in. Oh, this is one wonderful set. Yeah, dude, we know it's a blaster. Okay. Can we move on, please? <laughs> okay. Stop playing, playing the, you know, the savage with modern technology thing where it's like all mystical. Conan oh, dude, don't, I love that. I love Conan that. Don't, Conan don't fly here. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, but th- that kind of... And I can hear the roar of outrage from our fandom on that comment. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys know what I think, so come on. Come on. <laughs> you want a piece of me? Come on. Well, no, I mean, uh, please, every, please direct all emails to Glenn at Thacoshammer.com. <laughs> Everybody's entitled to their own pre- playstyle preference, but... I love it. I mean, my players in the game I'm running right now are just doing some excellent role playing where they as players know what they've got, but they're playing their, you know, tribal jungle guy who doesn't have any idea that's a Dazer pistol. I know, but there was some of that going on, but the the DM was just ad nauseum. I mean, slowing the game down. Well, then it sounds like, yeah, it was less the topic than you just had a bad DM. I guess I did. That's why my opinion has changed somewhat. Mm-hmm. Get into that later. So that's mine. Yeah. Well, you know, I, growing up in the late seventies, early eighties, yeah, I one cartoon I loved was Thundar the Barbarian. Oh, really? I had no idea. Yeah, head. I know. It's, it's crazy. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Gamma World role, play, you know, animated show, you know, <laughs> right there. But of course, it's got magic too. And demons and and sorcerers and and except for Ariel, you'll note it takes the Conan esque thing about sorcerers. You know, it's like, except for her, anybody with magic is a bad guy, evil, evil, and wants to rule the world. Trademark. 
with two faces on a rotating head or something. <laughs> yeah, or something great like that. I love you that know? cartoon. Ah. That sounds like He-Man, actually. And they all had the same voice. Which means you know they're evil because they talk like this. <laughs> that's that one retired actor. That's his whole paycheck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like Hanna Barbera had just this one guy, you know, doing all the all the evil villain voices. Yeah, I remember. You know, Mike and I were talking once while we were watching some Thundar episodes. It's like you know, I think there are only five people doing all of the voices on this show. <laughs> It sounds like the same five people. <laughs> it could be. Okay, okay, here, okay, here's trivia question. Here's, here's a piece of trivia that has nothing to do with, with, but you mentioned voices, so I figured I'd throw it in. Jack Mercer, Jack Mercer, the guy, the, the, the voice of Popeye, the voice, the Felix the Cat cartoon they ran, you know, he likes the cat, da 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 da. Um, he did every voice, every voice. Mm-hmm. Everything. Jim Henson did a lot, so yeah. yeah. He, it's like he's che- okay. We're paying him a lot of money, so you're doing everything, okay? <laughs> well, to get our mandatory Doctor Who reference out of the way, um, do you remember that episode where um, the Tom Baker series where Leela was introduced? Yes, I oh, do. The seventeen, the seventeen, the so, yeah, Warriors of the Seventeen Tribe. You know, yep. the survey team. That was. My favorite scene out of there was when the the shaman was doing his little dance around the doctor and pointing something at him, and the doctor's kind of leaning away and goes, "See, see how the evil one withdraws from this the holy symbol of Zoanon," and he's going, "I'm leaning back because you're holding a live thermal detonator." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your words of power will not avail you. you know? So it's real easy to work that stuff in if you're of a mind to. And in your show notes, you said you called this episode "Your Sci-Fi Is My Chocolate," and I think that's the perfect metaphor because if you look at like medieval fantasy and science fiction as peanut butter and chocolate, they go great together. But you don't want every candy bar to be a Reese cup. You know, a little bit goes a long way. Sometimes you just yeah. want the chocolate. If every time you run into a golem, it's actually a, you know, a defense robot or, you know, everybody's, you know, wand of magic missiles has Smith and Wesson on the side, you know. Yeah, it, that can get old. Unless that's the whole point of the campaign, like Carcosa, for example. To extend, to extend the metaphor, I don't like regular Reese's because it's too much, but the little bite-sized ones, those are great, just, just enough. And that's the way the game should be, just enough of each. There you go. Your mileage may vary. Like a drop of sci-fi in fantasy or something. But you like Carcosa, for example. Yes, I do. Um, but I was going to wait until later. Okay, that's that's cool. Um, I thought we were going to talk about that. So when we brought up artifacts, a whole big chunk of which, in uh, starting in Eldritch Wizardry and car- carried on into the Dungeon Master Guide, could easily be interpreted as technological items. Yeah, the Invulnerable Coat of Arn. Uh, Queen Alyssa's Nightingale. I mean, it's described as a, me- uh, a mechanism, but that could be anything from just a clockwork to, you know, an actual robot, especially when it, it could be nuclear powered. When, yeah. we, when we ran into the device of Qualish, we didn't know what it was at first. We just thought it was a big, you know, lobster golem. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and if that's how you want to play it, you know, as a DM, that's. 
but, but it's got just that level of vagarity to it that you could make it, you know. Well, you know, when our last show we were talking Chronicles of Amperth, what was the, the, the mechanical, the ones that Jim liked? The, the, the war machines? Yeah, that that kind of smacks of it a bit. That's what. Yeah, I, the war machines or something yeah, like the, that. The war machine. War machine, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. again, is the tank or it's a, 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 an aquatic attack vehicle? Or it's something. an o- it's an ogre from the game Ogre or Bolos from yeah. where Ogre stole it from. But anyway, true. Okay, um, so yeah, I mean, there's plenty of stuff out there if you're willing to play the campaign that way. Um, what have any of you ever taken something from science fiction and converted into something for your campaign? I made up one, but I have never ever had the opportunity to actually use it in well, a real campaign. But not it's, important. It's it's sitting there. One day, maybe it will get some use. Remember the show, the animated show, Galaxy Rangers. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The robotic horses that they rode. Yeah, i i had to, I had made up how one would work as an artifact of some kind, and my idea had been that one day, if I was running a sufficiently high level campaign, I'd have the adventurers unearth one of these things. Oh wow! And figure out how to activate it either on purpose or by accident and it would align itself with a paladin type character that was in the party try to steal my war horse now buddy (laughs) and the horse would be just as you know intent on making sure justice was done as the paladin would be you know they would be one unit not to mention solid steel and yeah yeah. Nice. Cool. Nice. Jim? That, that's my thing. Um, I did one just recently. A couple, This past year, I was guest blogging for a blog where they put a monster or a magic item up every uh, uh, day, and mine was the Wailing Wand of Lockpicking. This invaluable wand was created by an ancient magic user thief who once roamed the multiverse and whose name has been lost to the mists of time. Uh, either magic user thieves can use this propitious device, which opens locks and finds and removes traps with the same ability as a 12th level thief, and on and on and on. And uh, uh, it should be noted that when used, this vociferous device will emit a high-pitched whine or wail that is easily audible to any <laughs> creature or wandering monster within 100 feet, making silent lockpicking with the device impossible. But it won't work on a deadlock seal. That's right. <laughs> and then everything in the world you then subsequently run into is a deadlock seal. Right. right. So there you go. <laughs> Glenn's going, right, whatever you people are talking I, about. I like it. Think Doctor Who. Re- I know. I know what it is. It's recharge it with audible glamour. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Glenn? None. None at all? None at all. Never? Never. Not even from wizards. Um, no, come on. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was kind of a low blow. That was a cheap shot right there. That was a cheap shot. Okay. All right. Um, I, I, I must say I haven't. I, I really haven't of my own. 
I've always kind of actually no, that's not true. That's not true. I have run something that had it written. Yeah, I did have something where I made an alien equivalent or a um, fantasy race equivalent of the T one thousand from Terminator Two. Oh, sweet. Um, Although it was technically it was a spell jammer game, so I'm not really sure if you can if if installing sci fi and spell jammers. You know, it's like well, that's kind of the whole point, isn't it? So but, like a, a Quicksilver Golem? Yeah, basically. And their ship got infested with them, and and it was not a lot of fun. Was it, Liz? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Thank you for reminding me of that. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and yet she still plays in my games. I, I, don't, I don't get I'm it. And that was even before we got What's married. Wrong with her? And that was before <laughs> we got married. So, you know, she knew what she was getting into, and she married me anyway. It's really weird. It's for your voices. Not all of your voices. Not all of my voices. But some of your voices. Yes. Well, now, these sound like right. some pretty good voices. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, is there anything we want to talk about building things, or do we want to go to Game On and talk about having to deal with players with technology? Uh, or player characters, me, I should say. You've tapped me out on building things. The robot horse was all I have. So go for <laughs> it, Mike. All you had in the box. So that's right. Robot I'm done. Would be cool. Yeah, I think that's great. And so we go to game on. Those pesky player characters. You try stepping them out. You try rubbing them out. Yeah, yeah. Makes me think of that line from Clerks. You know, kind of one of the, this would be a great game if it wasn't for those darn players. <laughs> so anyway, that's the pro. I guess in a way, this kind of falls into the same thing as giving them big magic items. You know, how do you deal with the player characters when they get technology? Now, I notice that in – I know this is a bit of taco here, a little taco meat, but in Expedition of the Barrier Peaks, it's covered by the, you know, I think it's like a mile or something. You Broadcast get more than, power. Oh, yeah, more than a mile away from the wreck and the items become inert, which, you know, it, it works for a, what amounts to a tournament or, or that sort of thing, but – and I always feel kind of cheap doing that to players. You I know? like nerds. Well, you could do it the way a lot of magical wands work. It has charges. And yep. by the time you use up so many charges and its power pack is depleted. Um, and if anything, charges makes more sense with technology, frankly, than it does with magic. I mean, some of it's judge skill, because a lot of that stuff, if you judge it correctly, will take care of itself. I mean, say a player's got a blaster rifle with 50 charges and runs amok with it. What's his world like after he runs out of charges? He's run amok in the place, and now he's out of charges. Well, it's got one one less amok player character, probably, because the villagers with torches and pitchforks will set fire to the witch. 
Exactly like that original Star Trek episode where that uh, Starfleet captain went berserk and he's down on the planet with the comms and the yangs and his phaser packs are all running out and suddenly he needs more because <laughs> he's in deep poop. Yes, that the, the iconic episode where the prime directive works except when it doesn't. Right. <laughs> Go there. Your Bible is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Run, freak Run, out. Freak out, big-headed alien from space. Anyway. Is, did you say pig-headed alien? Pig-headed. Then it would be an orc. You know, okay. Bill Shatner, you know. Anyway. Uh, okay, I always thought that episode – well, you mentioned the first Doctor Who episode that Leela was was introduced, and I always thought that, like, they got that idea from that Star Trek episode with the Combs and the Yangs. Well, it could be. That's it was a, a little later. It's a pretty classic trope. It's hard to say who yeah. got it from where. Yeah. yeah. Although I did like when the Doctor offered Leela the jelly babies. It's true. The evil one eats babies. I, I, think, I think it comes from lack of television budget, where you just got so many props and wardrobes sitting around. Yeah, just make it we look gotta reuse these. old and rusty and you're good to go, you know. No, no, this isn't because, you know, this this prop isn't nasty because it's been stuck in the back of the props room for the past 10 years. No, it's it's prepared for an ancient civilization type. That's so, right. Yeah. Well, Next time, knock the cobwebs off. I mean, um, back to handling players. I like that you used the Arthur C. Clarke quote in the beginning because if you if you use that in how you're running the game, then it's all just game mechanics. As long as you don't get thrown, if it's your game you're running, is you don't get thrown by it's not apples and oranges. It's apples and apples. It's just got a different name and a different set of rules, but it's still rules. Then you're fine with a little, you know, give the magic user a 45 pistol. He's not going to hit anything with it any better than you or I would if we've never fired a pistol. Yeah. Have any of y'all read the Guardians of the Flame series by Joel Rosenberg? I love those books. Yeah. No. Okay. Spoilers. If you're, if you're listening to this, you might want to shoot forward. We're going to spoil, a, thir- spoil yeah. a 30 year old series of books, folks. Hey, some people get. Get weird that way. Yeah. It was a sled, folks, and the and, ship stinks. And because it is 30 years old, there may be some listeners who've never even heard of them before. It's like, hey, that sounds kind of neat. It's yeah. like, oh, thanks for ruining it all for me. You know? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know? basically oh, the premise is there's a and d game at a university, and something happens in the middle of it, and the average Joes from our world are in a fantasy world in the bodies of their characters. <laughs> and, and and the thief keeps both his hands about five minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and yeah, because that's part of the part of the problem is their characters' personalities are still in there. So there's kind of a a weird juxtaposition of per, you know you have to really pay attention. Otherwise, if you're not, your character personality over. takes over. But one thing they do is at one point they basically declare war on the Slavers Guild and. One of the guys who played a magic user, he's not a very good one, but he was a engineering student at the university. So he starts creating flintlocks, and uh, they like free slaves and then give slaves flintlocks and other you know explosives to then go free more slaves and you know so on and so forth. We're gonna need these back because we got to destroy them afterwards. Oh no, they didn't care. You know, I know. I think I... By the by the third book, they're building railroads in this fantasy world. You know, it, it is they not are a totally kinetic... screwing up this world. <laughs> this, this series is not a Connecticut Yankee King Arthur's Court. No, no, it's it. 
I, I gave up after the third or fourth book because it was just like, you know, it was almost Games of Thrones before its time in depressiveness, you know, like, uh. Well, see, that's my whole point about the peanut butter and chocolate thing. The first book is awesome, and then it gets less and less exciting the more consistently they do it. Yeah. Welcome to Fantasy Book Talk. I'm Glenn. We have Mike here, and we have Jim. Yeah, 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 Glenn, just because you don't like reading. <laughs> anyway. No, I have but tons the of point, books, no. I yeah, the, the point I'm making is, you know, there there is not only the fiction for it, but like Jim said, once you get a lot of it in there, then it's, you know, well, it's Shadowrun, basically. Yeah. And you're not really playing D&D fantasy anymore, it feels like. But... Jumping tracks, you know, keeping on the topic of PCs, though, have you ever had a player want to play a character where, you know, I want my character to be a policeman from the 20th century who somehow gets put back here in this fantasy world? They all want to be John Carter or Flash Gordon, yeah. Or, or not even, you know, John Carter level of power or anything. It's, you know, I'm just a Joe Schmo. I don't, I may not even have a gun, but, you know, I know things, you know, I know basic physics. I know, you know, germ theory, that sort of stuff. Hey, Glenn. Have you ever had that happen? Can, Glenn, can I talk about comic books? Go ahead. Okay, just checking. Um, <laughs> my brother did this in our, our campaign where somebody wanted to express that exact need, and he gave him uh, his universe's version of Morgan from that old DC comic, The Warlord. I mean, so S seventy one. Right, same same template. S seventy one. Correct. Well, our we lived, our universe, our D and D universe was a hollow world, Pellucidar kind of place. Anyway, so you know, mm-hmm. he crashed, joined us, and became a ranger. And he, and, okay. he, and he had his little pistol. Yeah. Okay, I get it. Was the pistol – I assume the pistol wasn't like game-breaking of power. No, he hardly ever used it because he only had so many clips. Right, right. Okay. Uh, uh, Glenn? Yes? You ever had that? I'll... Not really, No. Okay. No, they're pretty much it's fantasy, fantasy. If I if I wanted to introduce some sci-fi in there, I'm sure I would have had one or two. Well, I mean, have you ever had a player asked to do that though? Uh, no, I have. No, I haven't. Okay, Liz. No, I've never had that happen either. I've never had a player come to me and say, "I want to play a modern person who somehow finds themselves in this fantasy world." Um, if someone had. I'm not sure what I would have done. I would have. I, I'm pretty sure I would have tried to find a way to make it work, simply because I've never done the concept before. So I don't have any preconceived notions as to whether or not. Oh, this would definitely be a bad idea. Forget it. I'd be willing to try it out and see how it how it ran. Um, mm-hmm. But no, I've never had anyone say they wanted to do that. Okay. I actually ran a campaign once. Where the PCs were all space marines, a la aliens, and their ship had actually crashed on Greyhawk. And it was, you know, they had a lot of big weaponry, but they didn't have just tons of ammo. And they actually burned through it pretty quickly, especially the first time they ran into a small dragon because they were (laughs) nuts. They were like, oh, my God. 
but it's pretty a soon. Bug hunt. It's a bug hunt. Yeah, yeah. It was a, a lizard hunt. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, once they burned through that, they became quote unquote. They started at first level, and yeah, they tended to have you know more hit points than the average human because I assumed that coming from a civilized culture, they're going to be healthier and more robust than the average medieval person. That but beyond like that... Kind, that sounds like all kinds of awesome to me. Oh, yeah. I, they, ben was one of the character uh, players, by the way, Liz. Hmm. Ben and Jared, both. And they had a blast, you know, no pun intended. <laughs> well, because you, you love running Battletech, so that was kind of you taking two of two games you love and mashing them up. Yeah. And, of course... And they role played it well. So when the wizard, you know, the, a local low level wizard started throwing magic missiles bursting from his hands, they freaked out because they didn't know what, what the hell does he got a palm blaster? What's he doing? Yeah. So that was fun. And of course there's, you know, Dragon Magazine with Sturmgeschultz and sorcery. And I think there was an adventure based around Britain and Modern England and the Mace of St. Cuthbert, I think that gave some rules about having modern people, but I could just be – I might be misremembering and just thinking NPC rules. I would not recommend this for everyone, but I recently got my hands on the Arduin trilogy that came out at the same time as Basic D&D and was basically, you know, that uh, Hargrave – I forget, David Hargrave, is that the right name? Yeah, I was. It, it started basically as his house rules, didn't it? Yeah, With yeah. D&D? His, his, his campaign basically it was a campaign setting, but uh, he had. Uh, I mean, it was a very multiversal kind of universe, apparently, because there were giant grasshopper races that were native to the fantasy world. But there was all kinds of tech in there, and some technologically oriented character classes eventually that uh, players could aspire to. Mm-hmm. So, if you wanted to give it a try, and I mean the. PDF of it you could find, you know, at RPG. Now that that Sturm Schultz and what is it? Sturmger Schultz and Sorcery. Thank you. Wasn't that in the tactical review? Strategic review? Yeah. Strategic review, yeah. They, yeah. they, okay. just, they just ran that game at GaryCon this past year. It was awesome. Really? Yeah. Oh, that would have been cool to just sit in on. Freaking Nazis and D&D characters. Yeah. Duking it out. It's like, yeah, orcs versus SS troops. Who do you root for? (laughs) It could have have been orc SS troops. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) That would be the movie Wizards. Yeah. Yeah. Fritz. They shot Fritz. (laughs) But, yeah, and, and that article had certain rules in there about how you could deal with level advancement for soldiers and chaplains eventually getting the power to turn undead and, and other things there. I mean, it was real bare bones rules, but it was there. And I can't think of the company who did it, but somebody put out in the early 80s the Thieves World setting as a game aid. Was it GDW? I remember seeing that, but I, I was, don't... It was Chaosium. Chaosium, yes, that was it. And they had... Talk about, you know, a universal su- supplement. They had stats in there for like eight or nine different RPGs, including oh. Traveler. <laughs> the science fiction role play. Yeah, and I remember reading that and going, really? Well, I guess, you know, if you want your alien 
spacecraft to land on a weird world. And, oh, look, there's a little low-tech village over there. If it was full on, he wouldn't bat an eye. <laughs> so I don't know how available those are and or how expensive it is. But, you know, that's another thing that probably gives a lot of good info on conversions. Oh, yeah. For science fiction to a fantasy setting. I mean, how else could you use Traveler? Well, if you, I mean, if you and your group wanted to run very traditional, very token-esque fantasy with none of this crap in it, you know, you're fine. Go for it. If you're having fun, who cares? But Oh, absolutely. But this, yeah, is, this, is, is, this is my thing. I mean, I'm writing a whole game that this is what the game is about right now. I'm just steeped in it. I, I mean, uh, Michael Curtis's adventure, uh, Frozen in Time, is about a bunch of Vikings sitting in their village when the face of the glacier falls off and monsters start spilling out. It's sort of his tribute to Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. And when we playtested that thing, we had fun. Our Vikings run into what turns in – I can talk about it a little more now because it's been published. I mean, well, I shouldn't spoil it. It's not a spaceship. It's better than a spaceship. It's a donut. It's better than a spaceship. It's a donut spaceship. It's Red Dwarf. It's yeah. It's 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 a guy who's collected quite a few things from quite a few worlds. <laughs> Where are we? <laughs> I'm sorry. I was being enthusiastic. I'll, I'll, no, no, that's I'll, cool. I'll, I'll get back serious, Glenn. Huh? Huh? <laughs> Glenn's in Glenland. Well, let's talk about Carcosa. All right, let's talk about Carcosa. Let's hear it. Uh, Carcosa is a place that... (laughs) (laughs) Really? I think that, you know, this is one that I said, I kind of modified my view of sci-fi and fantasy. This is one place I would just run rampant with it. Okay. What because, made it? What made this different for you? That well, you already mentioned. You already mentioned one of them, Thundar the Barbarian. Okay. And He Man for another. Uh, Never got into He Man. Um, but this place was like made for that kind of stuff, where you have the the sorcerers with the mighty mind bending spells versus the guy with the big laser mounted cannon on the the the. The tank there and, you know, you know, to me, it's so gonzo. I mean, this is what Gamma World should have been, basically. Um, just, least- just as a warning, though, for our mm-hmm. listeners, you know, uh, Carcosa, as published, is a bit darker than Thundar the Barbarian. Yeah, they, they, they ladle in like the Cthuloid. Yeah, the, the dark Cthuloid yeah. monster. But they also have like alien tech and robots and stuff that crash landed there and all this well, other stuff. But it comes off like, okay, everything's a one-off. Well, you know, you I, gotta, Lovecraft was – that was all about Lovecraft. And, yeah. you know, he was – he had no problem with mixing and matching stuff too. Well, see, I'm, yeah. glad, I'm glad you brought that up because as as – is normal for people. We're tending to talk about it as one or the other when there's a spectrum in between. And Cthulhu, the Cthulhu mythos is both. It's 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 horror and it's fantasy, but it's science fiction too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What got me about Carcosa was I, I when I first got the book, I read through it and I'm going, oh, it's kind of dark and kind of like there's no semi-humans and this and that, and you got a little psionics and it's kind of like dark and nihilistic. And then they did on the web the Carcosa wacky races, and I went, hell, there we go, lighten it up. 
Don't worry if stuff don't make sense. Don't worry if you have technology in your fantasy. It all kind of fits. Okay. You understand what I'm saying? So that, that kind of made it more accessible for you, for your. So the wacky, yeah. the wacky goofiness of it is what what saved it, saved it for you. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'd say so. Uh, because you can do. Uh, uh, to me, it's like I said, it's so gonzo, it hurts. Because mm-hmm. you can have you can have your Conan and you can have your goofy Thundar, you can have your magic user over here, and you know it all. It's all good. Mm-hmm. And I'll just add this in. Uh, I think when you're doing this kind of mixing, you you do better to avoid some of the more hard science stuff. I think. Yeah. Just yeah. as a side note, because when you if you get really Asimov or that sort of thing in a fantasy world, you know, by definition, you're already well, doing stuff. We already we just lost all the old traveler players. <laughs> hey, I'm an old traveler player, but yeah, you know, but could, they're totally Asimov hard science. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. Well, that's great if you're playing traveler. If you're, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't really want to play traveler and have magic and dragons and everything popping up in it. You know, I I, I agree completely, and I'll tell you exactly why. Because uh, being an old school, my taste being more old school, I want to keep everything mysterious. And so, if you find a tank or a M16, <clears throat> the players can't have to role play that that's mysterious but if it's just a rod with you know neon tubing and they have no idea what it what it's supposed to be it's mysterious Mm -hmm. you know do you give them a vac suit or do you give them a clear plastic helmet that adds plus one to their ac and if they touch it the wrong way it seals them shut airtight you know that that's the kind of that that's still mysterious i like my Mm -hmm. fantasy that way i like the magic mysterious so why shouldn't the technology be mysterious yeah and again, you know, this gets back to my long-running preference for bare-bones stu- descriptions and letting the DM fill it in. That's one of the reasons I don't like when they, you know, put together magic guilds with to the nth degree with universities and magic shops on the corner that oh, sell magic light bulbs and stuff because it's like, you know, Forgotten Realms kind of feels that way to me. It's like magic is not mysterious. Magic is not unusual. It's you know, yeah, you know, go down to the local you know magicware store and get some replacement continual light bulbs for my you know study or something. I'm like, nah, no thanks. Whatever. Yeah. Again, your mileage may vary. You know, it's it's what you personally like or not. I'm probably going to mispronounce it, but those things in uh, Jack Vance, the Eon Stones, they're in D and D too. Mm-hmm. Am I saying yep. it right? Uh, I guess I always call them ion stones, but I don't know what the accurate. I mean, what are those? I don't know what the accurate one is. Kind of like, are those magic or are those technology? Or and why does it even matter? Right, right. Yep, yep. You know, thirty years ago, somebody would have said, you know, that you could carry a box around that will always tell you exactly where you are and give you directions to anywhere you ever wanted to go. That would be virtually magic. People go, that can't be tech. Nobody would build that. And, well, it's GPS units. Yep. Yeah. You got those satellites up there? We might as well use them. Yeah. All right. Well, any last words before we head out on the road? Because we've taken a lot of time on this episode. <laughs> Certainly have. We could do a part two. 
Yeah, pretty much. According yeah. to my magic bracelet of timekeeping, you're correct. Indeed. And, you know, if people want to write in with more questions or comments, we might do another show. That's right. Thaco's not here. Uh, <laughs> Savor die podcast at gmail.com. So, you know, or if you can write in and say, please, God, don't talk about science, space in your fantasy again. So I'd talk uh, about it all night. That would be great. Okay. Yeah, Glenn could talk about how much he doesn't like it all night long. (laughs) (laughs) It's dumb. It's dumb. All right. So we head out on the... The road. The railroad. Dusty railroad. Yeah. Yeah. Cutting cutting through the fantasy world of, of railroading. Yeah, that's it. How are we heading down the dusty railroad? Glenn. Me? Not at all, because he doesn't like that. No, I'm just, I'm just looking at this, this walking down the road, looking at this boomstick thing that just sort of like uh, fire stuff and ex- dis- disintegrates stuff. That that nice A name, that guy, you know, the A name. I can't forget. I forget what his name was, but Ash. It, yeah, Ash. Yeah, As Ashmoff. <laughs> Ashmoff. Yeah, Isaac Ashmoff. Yeah, that's it. Go. That's it. Yeah. How about you, Jim? Um, my magic user's plans to conquer the Duchy of Geoff have all just fallen apart as I go down the road, but I get more than a mile from the Barrier Peaks, and my robot army all grinds to a halt. <laughs> oh, man. I it's- hate it when that happens. Liz? I'm a cowboy on a steel horse I ride. So <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I'm walking down the road with this really interesting uh, thing that says Smith & Wesson on the side. And a nice long, I think it's a telescope because it's got this nice long barrel I'm going to look down. <laughs> Maybe this weird trigger on the side will open it up so I can see better. Oh, it's literal. Anyway. And we'll see you guys in episode 82. Which yeah, will stay more on topic next time, honest. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously. Yes. Good night, everybody. Good night. Free arc. The Saber Die Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions, and the Saber Die theme is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. This podcast is produced for entertainment purposes only. All other uses are prohibited. Nine out of ten DMs surveyed recommend this podcast for their players who listen to podcasts. Listening to podcasts over four hours in length is not normal, and you should consult a physician or at least a damn good psychiatrist. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Saber Die.